Good morning, afternoon, evening, and welcome to the 8311 Cast, your premier Midwestern-based sports podcast, bringing you all things sports to your beautiful ears. Join your hosts, Kyle Mersch, Mike Ludwig, and Wyatt Teeter as we talk to you about college football, the NFL, the MLB, and of course, our signature segments, Mike's Stupid Rules and Write That Down Predictions, here on episode 150. This past week has been a week of firsts. To start, Josh Allen sacked Josh Allen in the Bills and Jags game on Sunday, making it the first time in NFL history that a player has been sacked by another player with the same name. Now, for some clarification here, the Jaguars defensive end, Joshua, who doesn't have a middle name, Allen, number 41, drafted number 7 in the 2019 draft, sacked the Buffalo Bills quarterback, Joshua Patrick Allen, number 17, also drafted number 7, but in the 2018 draft. Just to clear some stuff up for you. How do you not have a middle name? He just doesn't have a middle name. You're not required to have one. You're not? I thought you were legally obligated to have a middle name. Absolutely not. Oh, okay. This is America. There's, it's, there's, there's bonus fun fact. You're not legally required to have a middle name, apparently. I guess we're having four fun facts today. Number three, then, is uh, slightly less notable, uh, notable, but it's an NFL scoregami, a score of 45-30 to 30 in the Colts-Jets game with Indianapolis coming out on top, making that the first 45-30 to 30 score ever in NFL history. And a nice segue into our Cyclone segment, but Brees Hall, with two rushing touchdowns in the Iowa State-Texas game, brought his career rushing touchdowns to a total of 44. While he's already surpassed the Iowa State school record, uh, he's now tied for number 10 in the Big 12 for career rushing touchdowns and has the most uh, amount of career rushing touchdowns for any active player in the Big 12. Boom. Load of four yeah. fun facts for you. He's literally the longest active and most effective running back in the Big 12 right now. <laughs> So. He is, and he and he showed that on um, on Sunday when uh, he outplayed Bijan Robinson by a pretty significant uh, margin in Iowa State's thirty to seven. I'm gonna call it a domination of Texas. Um, some could make an argument that it maybe wasn't, but I'm gonna call it a domination of of Texas. Um, the defense of Iowa State. I'm gonna say they played solid, but not great. That might be an understatement to some people. I mean, you held your opponent to seven points, but I thought a lot of what the defense, the defense played solid, but some of them were just Texas missing open receivers. Both Texas quarterbacks, I thought played really poor games and missed some open receivers that they otherwise should have, uh, should have hit, which really would have changed this game. So that's why they, they get a solid, but not great um, from the defense for me. Um, for 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 reference there on the uh, percentage completion percentage of the Texas quarterbacks, uh, Casey Thompson, the the initial starting quarterback for Texas in this game, was only two of six for two yards. Um, he was he was uh, bouncing passes to receivers, and then Hudson Card, who came in and replaced. Uh, in replace of Thompson, I believe on Texas's third drive of the game, uh, he was only 14 of 23. Uh, that's a 60% completion percentage if you're keeping track at home. And he was only averaging 4.4 yards per attempt as well. So they really weren't pushing the ball down the field and challenging the defense, I would say, um, to Mike's point there. Yeah, so that they, they they solid. They played they played well. They did what they needed to do against a, a a bad Texas team. This Texas team is bad. 
I don't know if Texas fans will admit it, but this is this is not a good football team for Texas. How, how did this Texas? How was this Texas team up seventeen on OU though? Back during the I Red River know. rivalry, I mean, I, this Texas team scored forty-eight points against OU, but it wasn't enough. I, I this that Texas team in that game, if unless OU's offense is or defense, excuse me, is that bad, Casey Thompson who we said got benched, he was 20 of 34 with 388 yards and five touchdowns in that rivalry game. Uh, Texas in that game had 516 total yards of offense. In the game against Iowa State, they just had over 200. I don't know what's changed. The offense is still the same, really. The answer is Oklahoma's defense is bad, and our defense is good. I literally think that's what it's leading to. Um, and I don't know, maybe it's Iowa State's scheme that's that's different. Maybe it's uh, a host of other things. I will say the difference between Iowa State uh, against West Virginia and Iowa State against Texas, obviously Mike Rose was on the field, but Will McDonald played a fantastic game against Texas. It led him to defensive player of the week. Uh, In this game, he had three tackles, two assisted tackles, two and a half sacks on the game. So did Uwazarike as well. He also logged two and a half sacks. This Iowa State defense got pressure to the quarterback, and that was, I think, a huge, huge difference between West Virginia and Texas. Uh, in those two weeks, West Virginia's quarterback, Deggy, was able to just sit in the pocket and pick apart the defense when you find gaps in that 3-3-5 scheme. Well, Texas barely had time to even find any gaps. They were they were skipping the ball. They were always rushed. The quarterbacks were scrambling for their lives, it seemed like. So the, it just goes to show what happens when you get pressure on the quarterback, and that's going to have to continue, especially with... Uh, games coming up here where you're going to need to get pressure on the quarterback in order to uh, keep your hopes alive. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and I mean, so the difference between the Oklahoma defense and the Iowa State defense um, is more than a hundred, just over a hundred yards per game. Iowa State's giving up an average of 282 yards of offense per game, whereas Oklahoma's giving up 384. So. There is a difference between Oklahoma's offense and Texas' offense. And Oklahoma hasn't played the three best teams besides themselves, the three best teams in the conference, with their last three games being against Baylor, Iowa State, and Oklahoma State. So Oklahoma's offense or defense is bad, I think, is the solution to um, that puzzle. But um, speaking of Iowa State's offense, it came alive in the second half Um it um, there were a big couple of big runs by Brees Hall, um, including a long touchdown run. We had Xavier Hutchinson throwing a what was it like a forty-eight? It was a 40, touchdown 49 pass. yard touchdown completion to Tariq Milton. It was a beautiful yeah. play, beautiful play design. Um, it was on, Texas on that safety bought it hook line and sinker and just let Milton go. Free. Well, the, well, the safety also bought the run. He he came up on the run and the corner just bit it hard. Went to go after Xavier Hutchinson. Uh, the safety also came in two or three steps on the play, which killed him. 
Um, so he wasn't able to get over over the top for help. But I mean, when I saw the when I saw that play develop and Hutchinson pull up, I was like, well, there it is. It was awesome it's, seeing Kyle Kemp running down the sideline in jubilation. He was very was. excited in that play. It was. As soon as I saw that pass go backwards, I was yelling, double pass, double pass. Yep. And then Hutchinson goes and throws. That was awesome. Um, so, yeah, the offense came alive in the second half. I'm going to nitpick, though, because that's what I do. Um, this Cyclones offense needs to do better on third down. Um, I think... And personally, I think some of that is play calling. I really don't like the Cyclones' play calling, especially in short yardage, um, third down scenarios. I think the play calling and the execution on third down, especially third and short, needs to improve. And playing off the in goal to go situations needs to improve too. Um, you let Texas um, off the hook. Um, multiple times in the first half because you failed to convert on third or fourth down um, in Texas territory, and we had goal to go on that first drive and couldn't punch it in the end zone, right? That's why you were down at halftime, despite you were we were the better team in the first half too, but we let Texas off the hook by not playing well on third down and not playing well in goal to go in that first half. We were 3 of 13 on third down again, which... Most days is not good enough to win football games. They're going to need to be better on um, on third down going forward. The other thing that needs to get better from the offensive side of the ball is I do like to see that Brock Purdy is scrambling more and getting out of the pocket more, but there's a few things he needs to improve out there. One of them is he needs to improve on his decision to run, throw, or throw it away. I feel like he makes the wrong decision in those situations too often. There was once where he ran out of bounds two yards behind the line of scrimmage instead of just throwing the ball away when he was in a scramble situation. Like, j- just throw the ball away. There's no advantage to running out of bounds behind the line of scrimmage there. Just throw the ball away. Um, and the other thing he needs to get better at is on those scrambles, he needs to get better at field awareness now. It's two games in a row, and granted that West Virginia one was a questionable call, where he dives for the first down marker too early and comes up short. He's got to have better field awareness in those scenarios where he's either got to wait more to dive or he's just got to try to fight um, through for that first down instead of diving. He needs better field awareness on those runs because on third and fourth down, we can't afford to be coming up half a yard short. Um, because he dove too early. He could have picked up that fir- that first down um, on that first half drive where he came up just short, but he dove too early and ended up short. So those are the two things I want to see out of Brock Purdy. Better decisions in scramble situations and better um, field awareness so he picks up those first downs. I, I 100% agree with that assessment. I mean, it really... Thir- three out of 13 on third down is... I would say it all boils down to play calling what you get on first and second down. Like you said, with Purdy running out of bounds, that backs you up two yards. That makes your third and I, I don't remember if that if him running out of bounds created third down or what, but let's just say you're at second and five. You lose two yards by running out of bounds when you could have thrown the ball away. Third and five, it, it might not seem that much different than third and seven, 
but it is when it comes to play calling and defensive scheme setup. It, it's a big difference. I would take third and five over third and seven any day. Um, there just needs to be a little bit more awareness in that situation. Um, some of the plays that we're running early on third on on early downs, first and second down, aren't really setting this offense up um, for success on third down. I would say this is the least explosive offense that Iowa State has had in the past four or five years. Um, correct me if I'm wrong there in that assessment, Mike, but this this team just doesn't seem to get those those 12 to 15 chunk yardage plays um, as normally as they were maybe a couple of years ago in, in Brock Purdy's first couple of years as starting quarterback or even with Kyle Kempt at, at the helm. Um, it doesn't seem as explosive. It seems like they rely too much on getting positive yardages on those downs. Uh, and, and it really just sets us behind behind the chains. And I, I had said it in our group message during the game. I was like, we get behind in downs, in, in the early downs too often. And it's just the case. I'll also nitpick on the penalties. You know, six penalties for 45 yards doesn't seem that bad. You're like, okay, six penalties, that's not terrible. This team has been has been more disciplined uh, in, in the penalty, in the accepted penalties and the yardage that has been given up with those penalties throughout the year. But six for 45, they came in pretty crucial situations sometimes, and it's and it's those early it's those early down penalties that put us behind the chains as well. It, we just don't seem to overcome those penalties. And for an offense that is less explosive, you can't have those penalties that set you behind the chains. Uh, it's, it's a culmination of things that leads to a big, big issue. And third down efficiency is a blaring red flag for this team right now. So that's something that needs to be worked on um, as well. And you like to see some of our special teams players uh, fall on the ball properly so that they can actually get some of those muff punts that Texas was allowing. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not going to complain too much about that. That's not a big picture issue, whereas some of these other ones are. Um, despite all those nitpicks, I mean, great win. You did what you need to do against a Texas team. Um, you're still in fairly decent shape for the Big 12 title game. More on that in a little bit. But the other stat I wanted to share quick about this game before we move on to next week is just to hope on the difference between Iowa State and Texas. They showed this during the broadcast. Since 2017, Texas is first in Big 12 recruiting, and Iowa State is seventh. Texas has had 74 five-star recruits, and Iowa State has had four. Yet despite that, Texas is 36 and 23, and Iowa State is 38 and 22. So Iowa State's been a game and a half better than Texas, despite having uh, 66 less four and five star recruits than Texas. So it just speaks to the job that Matt Campbell and Co is doing, developing players and uh, and turning them into winners that Texas has not been able to do. So just just bringing that up, just because I thought it was it was a cool stat. Um, moving on to next week, we are playing another Texas school. Surprise! It's like Almost half of the Big 12 is in the state of Texas. Um, we are playing Texas Tech in Lubbock. Um, we're going on the road. That game will be 2.30. Uh, kickoff on ESPN2 next Saturday. Um, Iowa State opens up as 10.5 point favorites in Lubbock. Um, ESPN's FPI gives Iowa State a 
uh, 75.5% chance to win. Um, 538 Sports ELO gives Iowa State a 72% chance to win. So either way, we're right around there. Um, I don't have a ton of keys to this game. I mean, Texas Tech has a little bit of a three-headed rushing attack. Um, so they like to keep their running backs fresh, so just bottle up their their running backs. But really, Texas Tech just just isn't a good team. Um, the results show it. Everything just sort of shows it. They're just really not a good team. They got blown out by TCU. K-State beat them. They got blown out by OU. They're just really not that great of a team. Um, you can beat this team for sure. Um, so I, just go do it. Yeah, I'll chime in there. This, this is a must-win game. I mean, Texas Tech's strength is by far their offense. I mean, when have they ever had a great defense down in Lubbock? Uh, Not recently. So their strength is in their passing game. They're 47th in the nation in passing uh, yards per game. I'll I'll say that. And third down percentage, they're really good as well. Um, So my key to the game is Iowa State's defense. Get get that that front set of players have them rush the quarterback really really well if they can get some solid pressure on this team you take away one of their biggest biggest weapons just get to the quarterback obviously that's easier said than done and that's a lot of game plans but i think that holds true here make them uncomfortable make their third downs long which we're accustomed to seeing on offense uh if you can do that i think we're leaving lubbock with with a win um so it it hopefully all the all the stars align for the Cyclones. This is a game you have to win um, as you're looking a little bit farther forward. And Mike has laid out some scenarios for us uh, with it looks like the help of one of our one of our good friends as well. So Mike, can you can you fill us in on that? Yeah, I can. Just one more thing I want to include before we get there. This is this could be a little bit of a trap game. Um, we play Oklahoma um, the week after that. Um, so you could be looking at a little bit of a trap game there. Um, so just be careful um, that you don't do what Baylor did and lose to uh, one of the bottom feeders of the Big 12 before you match up with, with Oklahoma. Um, speaking of that Baylor loss to TCU, that did a lot to help um, Iowa State's chances um, to make the, the Big 12 title game. Um, we almost control our own destiny. Um, if we win out, all that we need for help now is we need Oklahoma to beat either Oklahoma State or Baylor, or we need Oklahoma State to lose one of their other two games. Um, those are what we need to um, make the Big 12 championship game, assuming we win out. There are a couple of unlikely scenarios where we could lose a game and still... Um, end up in the Big 12 title game, but those are unlikely. I won't go into those um, until um, maybe next week. I'll go through all of the scenarios um, just so we're all on the same page with two weeks left. It's a lot easier to play them out. Um, when it's all said and done, using F- simula- simulating using FPI, the Cyclones have between a 20 and 25% chance of making the Big 12 title game based on... Um, based on ESPN's FPI numbers in the scenarios. So it's actually a better chance than Baylor now because we have the tiebreaker over OSU and the three-way tie between OSU, Baylor, and ourselves. Um, So that puts us above Baylor as far as percentage, chance of making it. So 
Uh, shout out to Sam Schatz, who uh, talked through a lot of these scenarios with me. When I'm just going through them in my own mind, sometimes I screw up. So um, thank you to Sam if you're listening. Shout out. Thank you. I appreciate uh, you talking through these with me so I can figure them out and not screw them up. Basically, take care of business, and more often than not, you're in the Big 12 title game. You probably have a 95% chance of making the title game if you win out. So the odds of not making it if you win out are really, really low. So take care of business, and it's probably yours. We'll update these scenarios again, of course, on next week's episode based on this week's results. We'll let you know what we got, and we'll go from there. So... There you go. Yes, still very, very real shot at the Big 12 title game, probably about 25%. It's a lot easier and clearer than the NFL picture right now, which really got confusing um, this week with a lot, a lot of unexpected results. Kyle, you want to tell us about some of those? Yeah, I mean, confusion is at an all-time high in the NFL. Literally no one knows what's going on right now. Uh, The Cowboys came into the weekend as... Some were arguing maybe one of the best teams in the NFL. Uh, They go out and get absolutely dominated by what was a 500 uh, Denver Broncos team. They were bullied at home, pushed all over the field. Uh, Dallas, that loss ends a six-game win streak for them. And they just, their offense looked lackluster until the second half and really the fourth quarter when they scored all their points. And it was just too little too late um, for them in that game. Uh, More of a head scratcher. We were scratching our heads at the beginning of the season wondering if this Bengals team was actually good when they uh, played their way to five and, like a five and two record. They get slaughtered by the Cleveland Browns. Um, The Browns are back after they get Nick Chubb off of injury. Baker Mayfield seems to be a little bit more healthy as well. And the Bengals uh, beat Pittsburgh and Baltimore, but they end up losing to the Jets and the Browns. Uh, The Jets not being a great team, and they lose to the Browns in a very ugly fashion as well. Uh, It's just... I I guess the Bengals just aren't quite there yet. It's a very young team. Maybe they'll turn the corner in the future. Speaking of teams that just haven't really turned the corner, Mike, do you want to check us in a little bit on the Vikings? Uh, And one of our former uh, Iowa State Cyclones as well. Yeah. um, So the Vikings went to Baltimore in a game that they were definitely underdogs in and should have been. Baltimore's a good football team. But in a lot of ways, they outplayed Baltimore. Baltimore turned the ball over two times to the Vikings, zero. Um, the Vikings had a kick return touchdown. Um, shout out to Kene Nwangu, former Iowa State um, running back and kick returner. Um, had his, it was his first kick return for the Vikings. He didn't get any opportunities last week in his first game. So I believe it was his first kick return of the year. He takes 97 yards to the house for a touchdown. Um, He also converted on a fake punt as well. Um, He ended up getting the ball on a fake punt and running for a first down. So big special teams day for Kenny Nwangu. Um, Good on him for him. Um, But yeah, so the Vikings had two turnovers to zero, returned a kick for a touchdown, and still managed to lose to Baltimore in overtime. That's been the Vikings play to the basically played to the level of all of their opponents this year, and most of the time they've lost. 
They lost to Dallas without a back with with a backup quarterback. They lose to Jacks or they lose to Baltimore, despite um, being up double digits at one point. It's just this team keeps finding ways to lose games, and it's really kind of frustrating. But you know, you move on, and the thing is, the seven seed in the NFC is still so bad that even at at three and five, the Vikings are now. They still have a twenty-five percent chance to make the playoffs. If I, what if I told you the Vikings had a better chance to make the playoffs than the Cyclones did to make the Big Twelve title game? Because that's true. That's how bad the seventh seed is in the NFC right now. I mean, what if I told you that the Vikings probably had a better chance to make the playoffs than the than in all reality the Chiefs do? That no one would have. No one would think that'd be true. But it just goes to show you that the NFL is completely up for grabs. The, the, the Chiefs have a 56% chance of making the playoffs, according to 538, Kyle. I'd, I'd eh. slow your roll there saying the Vikings have just as good a chance. The Vikings have like well, half the chance. It's like half the chance. That's not no. close. Well, I mean, we'll get into it later. This is from a Chiefs fan this is, that is very skeptical right now at the state of the team. Uh, Bills fans might be skeptical as well. The team drops to 5-3. and three. They they lose to the Jacksonville Jaguars when Trevor Lawrence goes out with an injury. The offense just looks like it has issues. I mean, this game was a 9-6 to six football game. Um, the Bills obviously not able to convert um, on anything. Josh Allen, as we alluded to earlier, was sacked by Josh Allen. Uh, but the offense just did not look great in that game. This is a Bills offense that outscored opponents uh, from week two to week through week two and week through week four um, by over a hundred points um, in those games combined, and it, somehow it's it started to falter a little bit. Um, but maybe the two best teams in their respective leagues are the Arizona Cardinals and the Tennessee Titans. Uh, Arizona beats San Francisco without Kyler Murray. Uh, Colt McCoy, uh, horns down, uh, former Longhorn, was able to be serviceable enough, but James Conner has an absolute resurgence out in the desert uh, after he moved out there when negotiations with Pittsburgh didn't go so well. Um, so, you know, Kyler Murray gets some rest, and Arizona just keeps the, keeps the line moving. And Tennessee... They lose Derrick Henry, you know. How do you how do you recuperate from losing probably the the MVP of the league maybe uh, this year as Derrick Henry has been off the charts phenomenal so far for this team and really the the cog of this offense. But they go out to LA and beat what everyone thought might be the best team in the league in the Los Angeles Rams, who the Rams have lost to the Cardinals but have beaten the Buccaneers. Uh, it's it, it just really seems like no one is the clear-cut uh, lead um, in the NFL this year, the clear-cut number one team, but maybe it's the Arizona Cardinals and the Tennessee Titans. Who knows? The Packers could have been the lead in the NFC, but they looked absolutely anemic without Aaron Rodgers. Will he be able to be back in time next week uh, when they play Seattle, that is yet to be known. Um, that is a home game, so one thing to note there is if he is able to pass protocols on Saturday, uh, he doesn't have to account for a travel day. So with that game being at home, he has a higher likelihood of playing. But this week in the NFL, uh, the the it just didn't look good with Jordan 
Love at the helm. The offense was in trouble. They had they had issues lining up. They were burning timeouts in a two-minute hurry-up offense where they weren't even really able to hurry up because Jordan Love just looked uncomfortable out there, and he looked new. His eyes were wide. Uh, he wasn't settled in at all, and it, it was obviously just it, it was his first, first NFL game, and it showed. Um, but did Aaron Rodgers gain more leverage now based on uh, this performance by Jordan Love? Uh, one stat to back that up is the Packers have averaged 13.8 points per game in games that Aaron Rodgers has missed since 2017. Two teams that averaged more points per game uh, were the 0-16 Lions that averaged 16.8 points per game and the 0-16 Browns averaged 14.6 points per game. So this this Packers team without Aaron Rodgers at the helm just doesn't have anything offensively going for them. The connection between Jordan Love and Devontae Adams wasn't there. And it, the Chiefs were able to capitalize on defense. I mean, granted, it was against Jordan Love, first start of the season, but the defense still has some big gaps. It, it, it seemed to get back to its roots a little bit, but there's still some issues, just like the offense still has some very, very glaring issues with it. And I don't know what's going on with that team, but it's, it's going to be a very tough stretch with games against uh, the Cowboys coming up. Um, as well in the coming weeks. They have a very, very tough schedule. Um, Raiders, Cowboys are on the slate next for the Chiefs. So could be interesting going down the stretch to see if the Chiefs are able to make one of those last spots in the AFC. But speaking of doom and gloom, potentially, there was one team that ended a World Series drought, and it did it in a very, very powerful fashion. Mike, do you want to fill us in on the Atlanta Braves? Yeah, so when we last left off this World Series, the we were the Braves were up three games to two heading back to Houston for games six and seven if necessary, and that game seven was not necessary. The Braves um, came out swinging and slugged their way um, to a Game 6 victory, hitting multiple home runs and extra base hits um, to win that game. They also pitched well, shut down Houston's also potent offense um, to get um, that win. Um, Good for them, beat the Cheaters, but I do feel bad for Dusty Baker. Dusty Baker obviously was not with the Astros at the time of this. He had nothing to do with any of this. Everything I've heard, one of the all-time great um, baseball minds and all-time great guys um, in baseball. So I do feel bad for Dusty Baker. None of the rest of them, but I do feel bad for Dusty Baker. He is going to be back next year. He signed a one-year extension with the Astros. Um, so I do feel bad for Dusty Baker. He's a great guy. But other than that, I don't feel bad for anybody. Um, your World Series fun fact is uh, Terrence Gore, who uh, was on the Braves roster this year, um, got his third World Series um, ring this year. He got one last year with the Dodgers and then also with Kansas City when they won the World Series. So that means he now has three World Series rings which means he has as many World Series rings as career extra base hits. He only has three extra base hits in his career, two doubles and one triple. But despite that, he's got three World Series rings. That's, that's a fun fact 
if I've ever heard one. So good for him. He also almost has more stolen bases than um, at-bats. That's also true. He does have more at-bats, but it's, it's kind of close. He's mostly a pinch runner and steal base kind of guy. Um, so the season is now over, which means we've moved on to the offseason. A um, couple of observations. That game, World Series Game 5 in Atlanta, is likely the last game we saw where a pitcher um, will be in the starting batting order. Um, it's the presumption that the Universal DH is coming next year, but we won't know because the collective bargaining agreement between the uh, owners and the players is set to expire on December 1st. Um, they have been negotiating the CBA for many months, um, but it still seems very likely to everyone in the industry that a lockout is coming when that um, collective bargaining agreement expires on December 1st. There is some optimism that a deal will be reached before we affect um, spring training and everything like that. They'd probably have to reach a deal by mid to late January um, in order to avoid impacting spring training in the season. But it's likely that a lockout is coming. I don't foresee them getting something done before December 1st. Um, so I'd expect a lockout to come at that point. Um, and then we'd have to see whether it gets resolved before the start of spring training. Um, I'm of the opinion that I think there's probably less than a 50% chance that they play a full 162-game season this year. It's very possible, but I think it's um, more likely than not that we lose at least some games to this labor dispute and there's a non-zero possibility that we lose the whole season. Um, so it's very bad news for baseball fans that we could lose an entire season of baseball to these labor disputes, but it is possible. Um, so that's something to keep an eye on. Um, we won't give you an every week update on that because there probably won't be much movement, but if there's any big news out of the labor dispute, um, stay tuned to 8311cast, and we will keep you informed on that um, for baseball's labor issues. Um, also, uh, some issues um, that almost uh, came up in an NFL game this week is, as, as, as most of us probably know, there are some plays in the National Football League that are automatically reviewed. Turnovers, scoring plays, um, anytime there's a play that results in an ejection of a player is also automatically reviewed. Um, I didn't know if you know that. Or anything that start anything that's under the two minute warning or in overtime are all automatically reviewed. So the question is, what happens if a coach tries to challenge something that would otherwise automatically be reviewed? Um, so it's actually pretty anticlimactic. Rule fifteen, Article one, Part one states that a team that initiates a challenge when the team is not permitted to challenge will be charged a team timeout. So basically, you lose the timeout as if you would have lost the challenge in the case that you try to challenge a play that's not challengeable. Um, if you don't have a timeout when you try to challenge, um, you would also be assessed a 15-yard penalty. Now, that leads to an interesting scenario where... It, the rules state that a review will not be initiated if there's a penalty on the um, on the um, team that wants the review 
before the review is initiated. So in the very, very rare case that a coach challenges a play he's not permitted to and doesn't have a timeout, my interpretation of the rules is that 15-yard penalty that he's assessed would then also make it so the replay is no longer allowed because a penalty was assessed on the the team wanting the review. So there is a slight chance that you could throw a challenge flag on a play that is already going to be reviewed and it results in the play not even getting reviewed, even though it otherwise would have automatically been reviewed. Moral of the story, don't throw your challenge flag when the play is going to be reviewed. Best case scenario, you lose a timeout. Worst case scenario, the play isn't reviewed at all. So be careful what you wish for there. Uh, don't throw your challenge flag when you don't uh, when you can't. That's that's the moral of this story. Uh, any questions on that rule from anybody? Nope, makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah, I'm clear on that. Mike Zimmer should listen to this episode because he seems to do dumb things with his timeouts and clock management and things like that all the time. So somebody else should hold the challenge flag for Mike Zimmer and only give it to him in emergencies. That's what I'm saying. Or you could just fire him. I wouldn't be opposed to that either. Uh, Anyway, I digress into our accountability session for a Write That Down prediction segment. Y'all know we have at least four predictions coming off the board this week because we all made predictions about the Texas game last week. Before we get to those four, there are five other predictions um, that came off the board since our last episode. So we'll get to those first. Um, The first prediction to come off the board is one that I made um, in that first week or first month of the MLB season. I predicted that Byron Buxton would win the AL MVP. Now, we've known for a long time that that probably wasn't going to happen, but the uh, Rookie of the Year, Manager of the Year, um, Cy Young, and MVP finalists were all announced today, and the AL MVP finalists are Vlad Guerrero Jr., Marcus Semien and Shohei Otani. So that officially means Buxton can no longer win the AL MVP. So for that, I get a nah, nah, nah. Um, Wyatt predicted also near the beginning of the season that we would have an MLB score Gami this season. Um, we were close. There was a game that finished 24-8, to eight, um, which has only happened one other time before that in baseball history. But 24 to 8 is not a scoregami. It's happened before. We did not get an MLB scoregami. So, nah. Nah, nah. Um, Wyatt also predicted at one point that Texas would not go to the Big 12 championship game. Um, the loss by Texas to Iowa State um, officially eliminates Texas from Big 12 title game contention. So, they will not go to the Big 12 championship game. So, ding, 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 ding. Ding, ding, ding. Words down. Horns down, I agree. I predicted that uh, Andrew Mevis would win one more Special Teams Player of the Week award um, this year after he won his first one two weeks ago. He won it again for his performance against Texas, punting well and also making three field goals, including a 51-yarder. So for that, I get a ding-ding-ding-ding. Ding-ding-ding. And Wyatt predicted before the West Virginia game that ISU would be ranked exactly 17th in the first college football playoff rankings, um, the loss to West Virginia made that a practical impossibility, but it was confirmed on Tuesday when the first rankings came out. They were unranked. So for that why it gets a meh. Meh. And then to run through our four Texas predictions from last week, I predicted that Texas would be held to single-digit points. Seven is a single digit. So ding-a-ding-a-ding. 
Ding, ding, ding. Josh predicted that Texas would be up at half and lose. They were up 7-3 at half, only to lose 30-7. to So, ding, 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 ding. Ding, 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 ding. ding. Wyatt predicted that Texas would never lead against Iowa State. They did lead 7-3, to so, nah. Nah. And Wyatt also predicted that, oh, sorry, Kyle predicted that Texas, as a team, would rush for under 100 yards. They rushed either for 102 or 104, depending on what app you look at. But either way, both of those numbers are above 100, so for that, Kyle gets a nah. Nah. Literally so sad. So close. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> so close, but not not quite good enough. Um, to start putting stuff back up on the board, I am going to say that the Cyclones do manage to fight back into the Big 12 title game. I like that. Do you have any percentages um, uh, on the some, most likely scenario? It's somewhere in between 20 to 25% chance of happening, based on information I got from Sam Schatz um, this afternoon. Uh, so that's like that's still like double territory then, right? Yep. Yeah. And, and then the, there's still a, a little bit more. There's a couple other paths with uh, least likely, so definitely a double then. Yep. Yep, I'm fine with that. I agree. Wonderful. What do we got from Josh? He's he's still alive. Yep, he's still alive. Doing good. Doing good. Um, he is jumping on the Alan Lazard train, who has had a couple good weeks um in a row, including catching a touchdown pass. This week, Josh is uh, doubling down and saying Alan Lazard is going to get two touchdown um, catches um, next week in their game against the Seahawks. He has three mm. touchdowns on the year, but they are the last three um, games that he has played in. Um, week, week six, seven, and nine. The last three games Lazard has played, and he has touchdowns in all of them. So he's basically... Basically saying he's going to double his production on the season in one game. Almost double. Yeah, I'm between a triple and a home run for that. I'm, oh, well, as of right now, as of right now, Aaron Rodgers has not cleared protocol, so we can't base this, I think, at this point on Aaron Rodgers being the quarterback. I'm liking this as a home run then. Yeah, I I am as well. Home run it is. All right. What do you got? So I'm, I'm going to say that Iowa State football is going to have one more game this year, at least one more game this year, where the total score is a prime number. So, so the sum of both sides is a prime number. For example, in the K-State game, we won 33 to 20. If you add 33 and 20 together, you get 53, which is a prime number. This has happened twice this season, the K-State game and the Texas game. So two for nine, 22% of this historically happening this season. So double, double, yeah. That's what I was I don't know. for. Yeah, we'll go with a double. That's a weird one, but okay. Is, yep. Wyatt likes to come up with the strange ones, but you know, sometimes hey, it someone's got to. What do you got, Kyle? Yeah. So uh, since since Texas is so bad, and we want to give him a really really nice farewell tour in the Big Twelve uh, and ongoing. I'm going to say that Texas loses to Kansas this week. So Kansas will get their first Big 12 win of the season. So Wyatt has already made this prediction this year. Oh, he uh, did. Which doesn't mean you can't. We do I'm going to still make it. Yeah, we do allow I'm duplicate. S- I'm on we the gave, train. We gave him a home run for it. Um, according to FPI, Texas has a 98.5% chance of winning. 
according to 538, um, Texas has a 97% chance of winning. This still seems like a home run. I don't think enough has changed to change that. I won't argue against a home run, but keep in mind, Texas is a little... I, I, FPI and Texas don't get along, but this should still be home run for F- sure. FPI and Texas do get along. You know? Yeah, I guess the what Texas produces doesn't doesn't really live up to FPI in, in my opinion. Right. You can the say FPI the same about Iowa State. The but. FPI likes Texas a lot more than I think they uh, are. For example, the FPI still, despite um, how bad they looked, ranks Texas as the 19th best team in football. But anyway, yeah, that's what I was yes, trying to get I across. Still, yeah. But yes, I still think that it's a home run. Very good. With two doubles and two home runs, that concludes our Write That Down prediction segment, which means we're at the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening to episode 150 of the 8311 cast. We hope to see you here again next week. Same time, same place. Signing off, the 8311 cast. We have your hosts. Kyle Mersh. Mike Ludwig. And Wyatt Tudor. Talk to y'all again next week. Go Cyclones. Go Cyclones. Go Cyclones.